Welcome to Can I Get a Retake, where we explore the accomplishments of our innovative community. Each month, we speak with one of Great River Learning's higher ed instructors and authors. Together, we discuss trends in education, areas of study, and a variety of teaching styles and philosophies. My name is Michaela, your marketing coordinator. My name is Michelle, your web design supervisor. And this is Great River Learning's Can Can I I Get get a a Retake? Today on Can I Get a Retake, we are speaking with the brothers Copsel, Drs. Dean Copsel and David Copsel. Dr. Dean Copsel is the chairperson and a professor of horticulture in the Environmental Horticulture Department at the University of Florida. Previously, he has held research and teaching positions at the University of Tennessee and the University of New Hampshire. He served as the administrative advisor for the Consumer Horticulture, Extension, Research, and Education Coordinating Committee, USDA Multi-State Project, as an advisory board member for the National Horticulture Foundation, and as a fellow and current president of the American Society for Horticultural Science. Dean's brother, Dr. David Copsel, is a professor of horticulture at Illinois State University. He worked as a state vegetable specialist for the University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension and in private specialty crop consultation. He has received over 20 teaching awards and has been recognized as a distinguished educator by the Non-Land-Grant Agricultural and Renewable Resources Universities Association and as an outstanding undergraduate educator and fellow of the American Society for Horticultural Science. And most importantly, but we're biased, both Dean and David have co-authored the textbook Horticultural Principles, Practices, and Career Opportunities with Great River Learning. Uh, the first thing we usually ask is a little play on our name, which is, can I get a retake? So we like to ask, have you ever been asked, can I get a retake? Yeah, a couple times over the years, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think for me, the, the one that stands out most in my mind is I actually did a video about a year and a half ago for an on-campus uh, facility, and I did it with our IFAS communications, and it's the most nervous I have ever been in my life because I had a script, and there was a guy following me around with a camera, and we did many, many retakes. <laughs> <laughs> so you were the one asking, can I get a retake on that? Exactly. I was like, can I get a retake? Can I get a retake? <laughs> well, so I guess just to jump in, But if one of you wants to just start and kind of tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into horticulture and education. Um, And now, you know, one of you is higher up in the education system as well. So if you could just, yeah, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got here. A lot of our background is is the same and shared. So um, hopefully your listeners would would find it interesting that we are identical twins. (laughs) Uh, Dean is actually older. He's he's, he's just a few minutes older than I am. But uh, we grew up in the, we grew up on a nursery, an ornamental tree and shrub nursery. So our father got into the nursery business right before we were born. And so neither one of us have either one of us have always had a job that was related to ag or horticulture throughout our whole lives. So we grew up in the ornamental horticulture industry. 
And our intention after graduating college was to take over the family business. And Dean actually graduated a year before I did and actually worked in the family business. And then right when I was going to graduate in the early 1990s, our father developed some health problems. And he decided that, you know, it was it was time for him to retire and really take a step back. And Dean and I, like maybe many of the students that we have were in the same situation, were 21 years old, 22 years old with this this uh, opportunity to take over a family business, which was great, but then there was also the downside that we could lose that family business or gamble our future. At the time, the, the economics just really were unstable in the nursery industry. So as a family, we decided what was best for our parents who were small business owners was to sell the business for their retirement security. And Dean and I, at that point, we were really good at school and we were kind of science geeks. And at that time, I kind of knew I really wanted to teach personally. And we had the opportunity to apply to grad school and go to grad school. And I always tell this to students, my best advice if you're going to grad school is bring your twin brother with you. Because <laughs> so, when you're in grad school, there's so much to do and so little time. So we, we actually worked for the same professor at the University of Georgia on two different projects, but we were there to help each other. So we almost kind of feel like we got two PhDs because I knew what Dean was doing and he was <laughs> he knew what I was doing. And of course, we worked really well together as a team. And then from there, our, our career paths kind of diverged because I kind of gravitated more towards teaching. And Dean had a really good talent in research. So uh, my first opportunity or career opportunity was with Cooperative Extension at the University of New Hampshire. And I was the one and only state vegetable specialist, which was a really interesting title, but it was a big job. And believe it or not, Dean got a job on the faculty at the University of New Hampshire. So we were together, but we were doing two different jobs. And my job was was really interesting, but it really wasn't fulfilling that teaching satisfaction or that teaching desire that I had. So then my career diverged to more teaching. I did a little consulting along the way before I actually got into a tenure track professor position. And then I'll kind of let Dean talk about where his career went from there. Yeah, so we were both at the University of Hampshire at the same time. And so Dave was an extension and I actually had a faculty position. So I was teaching and research. And together, we wrote a very sizable research grant with a collaborator that I had there. And Dave got a little disillusioned by extension and decided to leave. So he went back home and he chaired the horticulture department at the junior college with, that he attended that was close to our home. And like three weeks after he left, we got word that we got funding for almost close to a million dollars for the project. And on that project, I had put in enough, I had put in enough budget to hire a postdoc for the project. So at that point, Dave knew he had to come back. So I hired him back as a postdoc on the project. So I was doing the teaching and research and he was doing the actual research. And about the time that we were getting to the end of the grant, you know, that's when Dave had an opportunity to go and do a little bit of private work and then go to uh, Platteville and then Illinois State, where he's at right now. So he left the project and I was there with my wife and a new baby. And She's from South Georgia, so I, I told her that if I ever had an opportunity to go back further south, that I'd take it. So I had friends at the University of Tennessee who recruited me for a position in Knoxville, and we spent 13 years in Knoxville, and I was mostly research, but I did teach introductory horticulture. So together, I think Dave and I have probably, what, 35 years experience teaching introductory horticulture at two different institutions. Uh, and then, you know, while I was at the University of Tennessee, I kind of got the bug for administration. So I was involved in the faculty senate. I was doing some leadership activities, helping out my department. And I got the opportunity to apply for and get this position here at the University of Florida. And if you want to be in horticulture anything, Florida is the place to be. 
because we actually have two horticulture departments. So mine is environmental horticulture. We do turf, we do greenhouse, we do ornamentals, we do landscape. The other department, which is about twice our size, they do everything edible. So all the vegetables, all the tree fruits, all the small fruits, et cetera. So Dave is the one of one PhD horticulture specialist at Illinois State University. And here in uh, just on campus, we have close to 100 PhD people in horticulture for the University of Florida. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible, but surprising to me uh, that Illinois doesn't have a more robust program. Well, I'm actually in an agriculture department. And so okay. central Illinois, we have the best soils in the world for growing corn and soybeans. And I, I am like a part of this program. But the reason why I came back here was this is the program that Dean and I graduated from with our bachelor's degree. So I had a chance to go back to my alma mater and kind of take over the program and, and really find the passion. So here we're training students for a broad array of jobs. And what attracted Dean and I to this university, being from a family business, is our students are required to take 19 credit hours in the College of Business to get their degree. Yeah. So I've always valued that. And, and really what it is, it's not only positioning students to rise up very quickly in management supervisory positions, but also to put them in the position to own their own business someday and to be successful. So I've been here for 15 years. And uh, Bloomington Normal is a very vibrant community. There's about 125,000 people here. And your listeners, State Farm Insurance is headquartered right here in Bloomington. <laughs> and then for your really uh, progressive listeners, Rivian Motor Company is also uh, headquartered here, the Rivian pickup trucks. I did not so know that. They have become they have quickly become the second largest employer in Bloomington Normal, uh, <laughs> you know, second to, to, to ISU. Or being to State Farm. And actually, I think they've almost eclipsed us, I think, uh, Illinois State. But uh, two of the four garden centers in town are now owned and operated by students I've taught in my 15 years here. And I know that that horticulture background was great, but that business classes that they took was equally important so to, to their success. And, and that's a great trajectory for a lot of students. Right, sure. And in my current position as department chair, that business background really comes in handy when I got to do budgeting and forecasting <laughs> and personnel management. <laughs> yeah. I know that part of your your book was really to focus on those professions and career mm -hmm. development and letting students know all of the different career options that are available. I mean, is that where that kind of stems from or like what prompted you to focus so much on that part in your book? Well, I think it, when you look at just the textbooks that we had when we were students, I mean, they, they'll cover all of the basics that you see in our book, and then they'll have maybe one chapter at the end that talks about horticulture careers. Mm -hmm. And what Dave and I really wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that we had career examples. And with our professional networks, we had people who could actually, you know, talk firsthand about each one of those careers. And we wanted to put that in the book through each one of the chapters so students knew along the way that there were viable careers. Mm -hmm in anything in horticulture, not just at the tail end of the book when most of the time the professors wouldn't even get to that information and it'd be secondhand and, and we didn't even cover it in some of the classes that we took. So we really wanted that to be prominent in the text along with just the general information because that's gonna be important when students graduate and start looking for a position. But it's also important, you know, students come here and they have no clue of what they wanna do and it gave them some examples of some potential careers. And I've already gotten feedback from some of our textbook adopters that they really like the fact that the career profiles are within the text. It's not at the end. So we purposely placed, we, we talk about a subject or we talk about a principle, and then immediately following is a career profile of someone who uses that principle 
every day, you know, and I really, we sat down and we thought long and hard about those uniform five questions that each one of our career profiles answers. So it was a lot of like, you know, what is your current job, you know, and then we ask them what skill horticultural skill do you use most often, but it was a lot of how did you find your career path? What's the most rewarding aspect of your job? And then what piece of advice would you give to beginning students? And in both of our careers, students, when we bring in professional speakers and guest speakers and uh, the students gravitate towards that. I always tell my speakers, tell students how you got from sitting in a college classroom to your current career, because it, it, it gives students a, a visualization of how can I get there? And, and they don't have to look at me and say, well, I have to spend my whole life in horticulture to get a job. And I'm like, no, there are great careers out there. It's just that these are the skill sets that this career really uses versus this career versus this career. And the other great thing about horticulture is there are so many niches and it's so broad. It's We could have probably put in triple the number of career profiles and they still all would have been different because there's so many opportunities out there. There are so many different skill sets needed too. Just looking through the title, there's biology and physics and chemistry plus business. Um, it really is an, an incredible major. And just mm -hmm. looking through the title, you can see how many opportunities that would be available to, to students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I kind of boiled that down into like two principles is both Dean and I have always taught students about, you know, how plants grow and how the environment affects that growth. And all those subjects that you just described go into that. But when it boils down, it's like, you know, how does this plant grow? What does it need to grow? And then how is the environment going to affect that growth? Whether it's temperature, whether it's light, um, you know, whether it's soil type. And then when you talk about horticulture and you talk about careers, then like, how can you market that? How can you add value to that for a profession? And, and then there's also the aspect of the human health and, and the color attributes and, and just the, just the not only the aesthetics, but the, the nutrition that horticultural plants can provide. All that can be manipulated, manipulated by those other things. So it's like putting that all together is, is so important for students to see that big picture. And then what I'm hopeful is the students who take our classes and are across the country using Using this book is they can find something that they go, wow, that's me. That's my passion. And that's what I identify with. I think I could take that similar career path. It's been really a running theme, actually, in all of our conversations that we've had with authors on the podcast is the importance of letting students know about jobs in that field. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that's part of going to college is learning all of the different opportunities that are available to you. But even when I was in college, which wasn't that long ago, um, it really doesn't feel like that. And I think I still left like not knowing all of the opportunities that are available to me. So I really love that about your book and, and everyone else that we've talked to too about the different areas that they can go into. Yes, sometimes I get a little paranoid that that I'm giving them too many options. So it's like I, I think when they're done with me, they're like, I don't know what to do. So, but but again, it's it's trying to provide them as many options as and opportunities as possible so that they can, like we always say at ISU, is they can find their passion. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. The one thing that I hear from some of our stakeholders or from some of our industry professionals that interact with the department is that we most of our majors are going to have an internship requirement. So we want the students to go out. They need practical work experience in the industry. And we let them pick and choose greenhouse, outside, nursery, et cetera. And you know, when I follow up with those, those employers and say, well, how'd the student do? Is oh, they were fantastic. They, they did better than any other student or any employee that I had. And then I asked them what they wanted to do for their, you know, what they want to do for their career. 
And nine times out of 10, that student will say, well, I want to become a professor. I want to be a researcher because, and I, they, they always fault me for that. And I said, wait, you know, they come here and they get hooked on the bug because they see how passionate their, their professors are in their classes. And that's what they want to do for a living. But, you know, it's a sad reality that most of them can't do that. But some of the uh, actually industry stakeholders tell me that. So that's one of the main criticisms that you guys hook them too much on the science and not on the practical aspects of getting a career. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in some of the research topics that you've you've covered and that you've spent your life studying. So Dave and I <laughs> worked in the onion flavor physiology lab. So we actually worked with the Vidalia onion growers, so the sweet onion growers. Mm -hmm. My side of it was I was looking at plant nutrition and, and plant breeding, and Dave was looking at flavor biochemistry and enzymology. So in looking at that, we were looking at ways to, you know, manipulate the flavor of onions and also make them more nutritious or let, let them store longer, et cetera. So there are huge opportunities within horticulture just for edible crop, post-harvest management, and et cetera. And then as we sort of moved on in our careers, I kind of stayed with the health aspects of it. So I was in vegetable crop phytonutrients for a long time. So the pigments that you see in vegetables, beta carotene, lutein, alpha carotene, zeaxanthine. So those are the some of the compounds I worked in, but I, I was able to work with just about everything from your herb crops to your leafy crops, to tomatoes, to sweet corn. I even dabbled a little bit and worked with turf grass and some of the weed scientists too, because those are really interesting pathways. So it's just been a fantastic career and I, we've done some amazing things. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really generally focused on quality improvement. Of plants. And then the other thing, because Dean and I grew up in the industry, um, we've always tended to focus on the kind of the um, practices growers can use to change that quality. And a lot of people don't realize it, it, it could be just picking the right variety out of a seed catalog for a certain quality attribute. It also could be nutrition, what they fertilize their crops with. It could be the time of year that they plant them, how they, when they harvest them, and then how they store them. So, so because we grew up in the industry, our research has always had a practical aspect to it, to where We've always felt like anything that we do research-wise, even though it's really deep in basic science, we can still get up in front of a group of growers and explain what we did in a way that they can understand it and see how it can work for them on their farm. And that's what I think both of us have always valued about horticulture. I mean, we love basic science and we geek out on the instruments and all that stuff, but it, at the end of the day we're really there to help someone either grow this crop, grow it better, and to provide better quality for their customers. I can really see how you would catch the, the research bug then because that's so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Well, where I am at, at um, Illinois State, we do have a master's degree program. So I am very fortunate that I can advise master's students. And I have a different approach than a lot of other professors. Some professors will say like, I am an expert in post-harvest physiology. That's what I do. If you don't want to do that, you can't work with me. But because we're a very small dynamic teaching university, my approaches. I work in plant nutrition and quality improvement. What do you want to do? And just like Dean, I've worked on a broad array of crops with students. And really at the master's level, you're teaching students how to do research. And then whatever they're working on is just the tool that they learn how to do that. And both Dean and I with our graduate students is we always ask them, what do you want at the end of this? Where do you want to be when you're done? And then we tailor a project that's going to make them the most qualified for that career path. So if I've got a student who knows they really want to go out and work with growers, well, then we're doing a practical nutrition 
project and they'll show them experimental design when they're a crop consultant and they're evaluating products. But I've, had another, I've had students who have gone on to PhDs and they say, I, I, I know I want to get a PhD. Well, then let's do something a little more basic and get a little lot more analysis to this to qualify you for that next step. And I also have students who want to work in cooperative extension. I say, okay, well, let's do a, let's do a public type of a project, maybe do some surveys and some other things that will teach you an avenue of research so that when you do get that extension job, you can either continue that or interpret what's important for your stakeholders. And at my level, since I'm at a land grant university like the University of Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa State, you know, we have the tripart mission. So we have teaching, research, and extension as our core mission. And admittedly, we are really heavy on the teaching and the research, and it's really the extension side that we're trying to focus on now to show students that those are viable careers whether you wanna be an extension agent or if you wanna be an extension specialist. So there are a lot of opportunities that we can provide our students. The people in my department do everything from breeding better foliage plants to looking at tree safety in urban settings to horticultural therapy to gene editing and artificial intelligence. So it's a pretty extended range of, of what we cover on our research and our teaching side, but it's that extension side that, that makes the, the land grant system and certainly the university system in the United States so special from the fact that we have a mission to help out the stakeholders and the industry do better at what they do. So I know that you, I don't know if it's one of you or both of you have traveled with your positions and research <laughs> and gone to different places to help. Can you tell us a little about where you've gone and some of maybe your favorite projects and places that you've uh, helped? <laughs> okay, well, well, I want to start out by saying this. Dean and I grew up in a town of 800 people. So we grew up in a very, very small town in Northern Illinois, and I never would have dreamed that we'd our horticulture would have taken us all over the world. Uh, mm -hmm. Our first big trip was in graduate school. We got to go to New Zealand and Australia and presented an international conference, which was awesome. Uh, my uh, private or crop consulting career took me all over North America. I worked in Mexico and worked with growers from Peru to the Netherlands to France. And then uh, I've also traveled to Norway and the Netherlands for student exchange programs. And, and Dean's also presented around the world too. So that's the other cool thing about what we've done is it just opens up the opportunity for not only across the country, but around the world. Where, where have you presented, Dean? Uh, I, pre I presented in the Czech Republic. I presented in France, Canada, obviously. Uh, but what I do now in my position is really cool. We just hosted a group from Colombia last week. And this group has a mission to do ecological restoration of some of the wild protected areas in Colombia. There was a group of students and faculty who went down there the first part of the year and the group of Columbia came up. And so for the last week or so, I've been working on an MOU <laughs> with, that, uh, with that group at our university so we can start exchanging not only faculty, but also students. So there are international opportunities galore within horticulture and agriculture. And the really unique thing about Florida, which is something that we're going to try to capitalize on, is that if you kind of look at Florida and you put a, a like wrap around the globe, you know, we and the University of Hawaii are the only two land-grant universities that can actually specialize in tropical horticulture. Mm. And when you talk about tropical horticulture, the great example I can give you is coffee. Coffee is only going to grow in certain equatorial regions. And mm. so that's the way that we feel about the impacts that we can have on the international stage within horticulture for the University of Florida. Mm. Are there different horticultural practices between each region? I can imagine Peru, the Andean mountains would be quite different from France or New Zealand. What I always tell my students is, is that 
you know, if you know how plants grow and how the environment affects it, you kind of know what you need to do, but growers do it differently all over the world. And it really much boils down to what do they have available? What technology do they have available? What fertilizer sources do they have access to? And other things like that. So plants generally don't change too much in what they need, let's say in a given region, but ask 10 growers how they do something they'll probably give you 12 different answers so it's it's the objective to get there and how you do it i mean grow, growers uh, the growers that i've worked with are some of the most ingenious people in the world because they take advantage of the resources that they actually have whether it's trying to cure onions in a field versus in a in a you know a precision you know packing shed or or whether it's cooling something you know uh very with an air conditioning unit versus a high-end storage facility they, they know what they need to do. It's just so different in how they do it. Yeah, I would agree too. And I think that when you look at different parts of the world, you could look at different types of technology. So very, very low tech, very hands-on, you know, very practical type of applications, all the way up to some of the most progressive growers that you can think of. When you look at the the ups, you know, the high scale greenhouse top end industries are in the Netherlands. You know, the Dutch are some of the pioneers for greenhouse production and using greenhouse and protected agriculture. Uh, in Spain, they have you know a huge area in Spain right along the Mediterranean, which is one of the largest greenhouse production areas in the world. Yeah. Versus other places like you know we can grow stuff outside it would make it so much easier. So you really need protected agriculture. So it really depends on what you're talking about and where in the world that that's actually taking place. But like Dave said, the growers are going to be very progressive, and with the advent of technology and certainly with logistics, I mean there's opportunities that you can find the best spot on the planet to grow X, mm -hmm. and you can set up an operation there. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of technology, not to dominate <laughs> the conversation, but I like to ask a little bit how people are planning to implement generative AI. Um, you know, ah, okay. So artificial intelligence. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> great. Great. Uh, that is an absolutely great question because you know on the campuses we're grappling that with right now. You know, what are the students going to do with it, etc. On the production side and horticulture and agriculture, uh, the technology is really it's going to it's going to advance our science and certainly our production capabilities. Because when you talk about rapid data analytics, you talk about drone technology, sensing technology, etc. So you know there, we went through an age of genetic technology where we did genotyping, we did the human genome project. Most of our staple crops and certainly some of our horticultural crops are already sequenced, so we we've, we've got the instructions, so to speak. We've got that map. The issue is, is that, you know, with all of that genetic data, we don't have the phenotypic data or what actually happens when the plant grows. So artificial intelligence is going to allow producers to rapidly take imaging technology and just a picture, and they can look at leaf architecture, they can look at growth rates, et cetera, and then tie that back to the genetic side where the geneticist can now start developing that to produce a certain trait. And the drone technology is really interesting, too, because with drone technology, that's where they can do the sensing technology. They're going to use that for precision sprays. Mm -hmm. uh, they're also going to use that for looking at uh, dynamics within orchards, et cetera. So, so that's really interesting of it. But I think what I've experienced here in some of the industries in, in Florida is the fact that using AI and those rapid kind of detection capabilities are just going to be logistically speaking. So they have all this data that's coming at them and how are they actually going to determine it? And I've talked to many growers, many of our largest growers in Florida who aren't looking to hire horticulturalists anymore. They're looking to hire computer science students who know data analytics and also logistics. 
Because if you can imagine this, okay, imagine we're coming up on a holiday like Easter Sunday, and you want to know where in the country you can sell your Easter lilies for the optimum price and when you have to ship them and who do you have to contact, that's all rapid data analytics. And so they're trying to look at you know, ways that they can tap into that. And I think that as the technology progresses, it's going to go from very large scale to really small scale growers because it's going to be in everybody's fingertips and they're going to be able to utilize that in their own little mom and pop organizations. Yeah, yeah there's a there's a landscape company here in Bloomington Normal. They're actually it's owned, owned and operated by two brothers that Dean and I went to school with here. And it's about a, about a five million dollar year company. They're a commercial landscape company. So they do maintenance and they do snow plowing in the winter. They just hired a data analytics position in that small company because it's going to be so much time savings and labor savings to actually have all that scheduling and all that coordination done pretty much at the snap of your fingers. And they, they need someone who can take all that data and then build the algorithms that can provide the information that they need. So at the small scale level, you're already seeing that. So so that that technology has rapidly infiltrated the entire unit, entire industry. So I know around here even, well, the precision spraying for, <laughs> because yeah. we're, we're in the Midwest and so in Dubuque, Iowa, and there's lots of farms. So I know that I've seen it. And when I first saw it, I was like, just amazed. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I also love um, the harvesting where you, they're harvesting all of the plants and, or like the, sorry, the produce mm-hmm. and the machines will automatically like punch out all the rotten. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so fun to watch. It's so yeah. cool. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> that was off topic. Sorry. No, no, I, no I, I, it's, it's fascinating. It's coming. It's, it's, it's really important. And then what a lot of the public doesn't really understand is that uh, growers kind of have a love-hate relationship with pesticides and spraying because they they in some instances they need to do it because it's important for their production and their plant protection, but it costs money. And the less they can do of that, not only is it saving them money, it's saving the environment, it's saving on their workers. So so it's a win-win um, uh, possibility for anyone who's involved in precision spraying or using drone technology because it, it, it's so much of a cost reduction and a, a input reduction that's really important for the environment and also their staff. If we were wrong to say we're kind of on the advent of a second green re- revolution. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I think, go ahead. Could be. They're, they're calling it the fourth industrial revolution. Okay. So when you talk about the fourth industrial revolution, it's all about, you know, using these these technologies, the internet capabilities, et cetera. So that's that's what they, they're calling it, the fourth industrial revolution. Now, it's probably, we've probably gone through many green revolutions since the first one <laughs> at different you know aspects of horticulture and agriculture. But yeah, so it's really, it's just going to be the permeation of all of these other technologies that are going to be at the fingertips of everybody in their smartphone or their tablet right out in the field. I just actually had a prospective student talk to me last week, and he asked me, is AI going to replace people in horticulture totally. And I said, well, it's going to be, it's going to save a lot on labor costs and it's going to help things to be more efficient, but you're still going to need people who can run that AI and still be able to look at a plant and harvest a plant and sell the plant. So I said, we're a long ways away from that, but it's really going to become 
that that um, cost saving, time saving feature. And what I'm really hopeful for is the technology cost is going to get to to a low enough point where it's going to be accessible to medium and small size growers. Because when you talk about specialty crops and horticulture, that what's that's what makes up the bulk of who grows the food that we eat. So I mean, we do have the large scale companies and the large scale commodities in horticulture, but it's it, like Dean said, it's the mom and pop organizations. And I think once that gets down to their level, I think it's really going to be advantageous. And I also think for the jobs that it may take away at the field end, it's going to open up many more opportunities for people to get into this and start their own business if, if they, they know how to use that technology and know how to apply it. Right. Sure. Well, and I think there's also, I'm going to change gears a little bit, but <laughs> in terms of, you know, the public being aware of new things and new technologies. I think the public is also becoming more aware of environmental issues that are impacting agriculture, like soil erosion and monoculture crops and all of the negative impacts that that can have. I was wondering if, you know, at your level, are you seeing the impacts? Are you teaching your students about those different things? Or, you know, have you seen changes recently because of those the awareness that we all have now about that. Florida, particularly with um, climate change, I think especially there's concerns long-term within the next 30, 40 years that the, I'm just, like that, that there's gonna be long-term economic damage or changes um, specifically to the coastlines of the state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, well, on my campus, we have an office of sustainability, and I'm a big partner with them. And we recently uh, produced our first ever strategic plan for sustainability on our campus. So, so that that's there's a lot of sustainability um, initiatives. I've worked with our university golf course on what's called Audubon Cooperative Sanctuary Certification, and it's an environmental accreditation that. Uh, golf course superintendents are reducing chemicals, they're reducing their water consumption, they're increasing their water quality, they have wildlife habitat management. So we have full certification on our golf course. And, and, and again, when you talk about it at the grower level, all the growers I've worked with in my career, they know the climate is changing because there's they're the ones outside every day working with plants and seeing the changes that have occurred. And also uh, more so that's problematic at the farm level are the drastic extremes and weather events that we're seeing. So I always kind of tell students about the concept of a climate responsive farm. You're going to have to have a farming operation that can go three weeks without any rain mm -hmm. and then be able to absorb six inches of rain when it falls in a couple hours. That's tricky to do. There are people working on that. But I think as we talk about climate change moving into the future, that's one of the things that to be successful, growers are going to have to have an adaptable production system. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think you're going to see on the positive side is you're going to start to see zones of where crops are grown successfully change. So it could open up opportunities in some areas that had been too cold, let's say. But the other thing, the downside of that is you're also going to see drastic responses in pest populations. So we're going to see insects where we've never seen that insect before. And then we're going to see multiple generations of that insect with growers who have never worked with that before. The growers who have dealt with, you know, in all the crops we talk about, there's really like maybe five to 10 pests they're dealing with on a regular basis. And they know how to control those and they know how to adapt their production system to protect against those. But if you introduce two or three new ones and then you take some of the old ones and now you expand the seasonal window when they used 
are not used to dealing with them, it's going to become a challenge. So uh, when you talk about the skill set that that future horticulturists are going to need, it's going to be broad and it, it's going to encompass all of these factors. And there are many students that I teach who have that talent and they have that passion. And I, I know they're going to be successful. So climate change really concerns me, but I get to work with the next generation of horticulturists every day. And that gives me a lot of hope for the future because I think they're going to rise up to the challenge and they're going to be able to meet it and learn to adapt to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think from my standpoint, when you talk about the idea of sustainability or, or what's actually really changed, and I think for, for my state and a lot of states that are coastal, you know, more and more people are living in urban areas. And so when they're living in urban areas, they might be managed by an HOA or they might be influenced by local regulations, et cetera. So within the state of Florida, we are having to deal with regulations that talk about how to apply your, your fertilizers. And now they're talking about regulations that might determine how much you can actually irrigate. Because, you know, we have a lot of water, but water quality is an issue in the state of Florida. So I think on the horticulture side, especially on the urban horticulture side, it's really this idea that a, a lot more people more than ever are living in urban areas and they all have, uh, you know, a plot of land that they want to make sure is really good looking and they, they can take care of their turf and their ornamentals, et cetera. So there's going to be more regulation and oversight to that. So those are some of the issues that, that we're seeing here in Florida. And then the one comment I'll make about climate change, it's really drastic climactic events. So we're seeing, you know, more hurricanes, more powerful hurricanes. And that's going to impact not only the urban populations or the coastal populations, but it actually impacts a lot of the production areas, too, because as they come in, it could disrupt the timing. When you talk about there was a lot of citrus and a lot of vegetables that got taken out by the hurricane that hit South Florida in the Fort Myers area last fall. So those are issues that, you know, the, the growers have to deal with. And when you talk about crop insurance and some of the things that they have to prepare for, it's really these drastic climactic events. Uh, the other thing that we see in our state is we're the, we're the land of invasive everything, whether it's an invasive insect or an invasive animal that comes in. So a lot of our industries deal with that head on because a pest comes in and starts impacting not only the production side, but also the homeowner side or, or the nursery side. A new insect comes in, they don't know how to, you know what the life cycle is, how to control it, what pesticides they can actually use in a commercial setting. So all that has to be determined rapidly and very quickly. So the issue is, is just not enough personnel to deal with the problems that we face on, on a daily basis here in the state of Florida. Yeah. On the admin level, Dean, are you seeing, you know, are courses changing in your department to kind of adapt for that or offer more sustainability type of courses or not yet? <laughs> uh, they are. Yeah, we, we actually have sustainable programs. So we have large groups that do that. And we have that at the undergraduate level and also the graduate level. Uh, you know, obviously climate change and environmental sustainability are first and foremost on the students' minds, so they actually seek out those particular courses. Uh, we also have a huge artificial intelligence initiative on the campus, so they're looking at artificial intelligence and not only just in engineering and agriculture, but across the entire curriculum because they know it's going to impact everybody. So we're just starting to have courses come online that have an AI component to them, and believe it or not, it's, it's ethics, it's com computing, it's you know, language, how do you actually, you know, tell people about these new technologies? So we're pretty proud of the fact that we're going to be one of the, the power players within artificial intelligence for the students coming out. And again, that was something that, you know, the students asked for, and we were able to get uh, donations from alumni to make that happen. Here at Illinois State University, a colleague of mine, we just wrote a grant to the USDA to propose a new course called Sustainable Urban Agriculture. Wow. And again, we're going to, we're, we're talking about uh, adding that to the curriculum to 
assess or address the need with what Dean was talking about, this growth in urban agriculture, growing the food where the people are and reducing your carbon footprint for transportation costs. And, and then I think a lot's going to change with seasonality and you're also going to need storage techniques because in temperate climates like we are in Illinois, you're not going to be able to grow in the wintertime unless you get into this new area called controlled environment agriculture, growing plants indoors. And again, you're still going to need to know how plants grow and how the environment affects it because now you are providing all that environment for the plants in the optimal levels to make them do what you want to do. So. The other thing that's exciting in, in the agriculture and horticulture realm is that nowadays, the researchers who get support from the federal government through granting programs are now going to be asked to have that data available to the public. So the medical community has been doing this for decades. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to get NIH funding for cancer research, you sign the agreement that I'm going to make my data available. And so when you pick up a paper in the medical sciences, you'll see a cohort or you may have 10,000 or 40,000 people whose data has gone into that study. And on the agriculture side, you know, we've never really done that. It's always been the, just the single researcher, maybe the single experiment they're doing now. And the USDA is starting to ask researchers to make that data available and public. So now we have this capability to rapidly analyze all of this data. Yeah, it's so fast paced. I think a lot of people think of horticulture and they think of maybe it's just wandering yeah. in the garden. But no, it is such a, a vibrant industry yeah. and on the cusp of some really cool things. Yep. Well, so we also want to get into the process of making your publication with us. <laughs> um, so I guess if you could go back, you know, what inspired you both to put the whole thing together? You know, what didn't you like about the other books that you were using that prompted you to create your publication with us? Well, I think it boils down to kind of the history that both Dean and I have had. Again, we we kind of grew up in a very practical, hands-on, on-farm type situation. And then the time I spent in Extension really showed me the value of information. And I, I was in Extension at a time when I was still asking people, do you have access to the internet? And if they didn't, I would bring photocopies with me to the grower to give them information. So the, the introductory horticulture textbooks out there that were out there were good. They, they were a good source of information, but they didn't really provide that, that avenue of showing people where to go to find information. They're in and of themselves, they're good resources, but I had always in the back of my mind, of course, every professor, their bucket list is to write a textbook. And it had always been working on me. And I think Dean too, because that, that's like, oh boy, I wrote a textbook. That's, that's a really good thing to do. But then I, when, when I was contacted by Great River, I immediately saw the application of the electronic format to the vision that I had, the, the vision that had hyperlinks out to cooperative extension websites and the latest information, and then also to um, allow students to do interactive kind of things. And horticulture is very hands-on, so this seemed like the next, like the bridge between teaching a full-on hands-on class where you're standing next to the students all the time and that old textbook that was on the shelf. And, and I, I also have you know, worked with young students for my career, and they're very technologically electronic you know, savvy. So kind of a, the best kept secret in academia is, is professors don't really use textbooks too much anymore in, in certain disciplines, because you know, that textbook that I may be using that was written five or six years ago isn't covering the news things, and it may not even talk about climate change, and it sure isn't probably talking about sustainability with the electronic format 
we can make those changes and update those changes so they reflect the current knowledge. And then the hyperlinks are always out to that current knowledge. So for me, it was like, wow, this is exactly the style and the format that I that I always envisioned teaching horticulture as. I started to hear students talking about, oh, you don't need the textbook. You can find all that stuff on the internet. So I think that, you know, as we looked at this idea of creating an electronic textbook, it was just, it was a perfect platform for us. And of course, with, with what happened with COVID, where everybody went fully online, you know, there's a lot of students now who still want to stay in that environment. And if you can provide them with an electronic textbook to do that, they don't have to buy a book that they're going to carry around or you can't see it, but, you know, both Dave and I have huge, you know, books yeah. with all these books that we never crack open. Yeah. So I think that, you know, having something that the students feel is more readily uh, available to them and readily usable, they're in the digital realm and they're going to stay in that digital realm. So I think what you guys have to offer is just, it's going to be second to none as far as what's going to happen on our campuses. Yeah. My whole philosophy as an educator is kind of twofold. I teach the students kind of, the the how and the what behind horticulture and the principles and practices, but I almost teach them as much about where to go to find that information when they've graduated three years ago and their employer says, hey, can you tell me what is this? And you're like, uh, I don't think I can remember, but I really harp on them knowing where to go to find accurate information and to find it quickly because the internet has a lot of gardening information that someone <laughs> put on there. So I, we always talk about research-based information and where to go to find what's accurate. And I can also spend a lot of time describing, uh, we wrote the book for a national audience. So that was a challenge of, you know, a student in Florida, a student in Illinois, and a student in California can still find the book usable. We can talk about that. But um, being able to tell them that you can go on the internet, and you can type in how to grow tomatoes, but you also got to be aware of where you are because you can find a fact sheet that says how to grow tomatoes in Florida that's going to be much different than Wisconsin or Iowa. Yeah. So it's again, knowing where to go to find that information quickly. And I think that hopefully helps them to be a better professional in this industry. Speaking of keeping things kind of relevant and up to date, um, have you been in the process of revising your title? And if so, kind of what are those those new concepts you've added to it? I, I actually took advantage yeah. of a great perk in academia is a sabbatical leave. So you're able to pitch an idea, whether it's a research project or a scholarly activity and get it approved. And I had my almost all of my duties put on hold for for an entire semester and and Dean and I worked on or he helped me we wrote the second edition of the textbook and and what we wanted we we wrote the first edition kind of quickly but I really had a chance to work with the title for a couple of years and and as soon as I sat down it just flowed right out because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I mean, some of the, we, we expanded many of the sections. And one of the big ones that I'm most proud of is we we doubled the career profiles. So we really made sure to expand those. Uh, at the end of each chapter, uh, Dean and I came up with this idea for an assignment called Horticulture All Around You. And the whole idea was, is to get kind of students to open up their eyes about all these things that are horticulture related that they may never have known. And we had a we had most chapters had one in the first edition, but the second edition, we made sure each chapter has three options. And we made sure that you can do those options in any part of the country. They're adaptable. And what I do when I teach the class is I give students the option. Which one would you like to do? And I think students really like that. So I'm more interested, I'm I'm really interested in this aspect of 
horticulture that gives them a chance to investigate that further. So that was something that I think gave the book flexibility. And now other instructors, they could assign all three or they can say pick two or pick one. And it gives it gives that flexibility. The other thing that I'm really proud of that we added as a brand new section is, uh, well, throughout the book, because we have the lifetime experiences horticulture, we have what are called author flashbacks. And those are the lifetime stories that my brother and I talk about when we teach. And the editors of the first book, they actually said that was their favorite part of the book. They immediately read those in our drafts because they're just, I they're stories. <laughs> what? I did. I also, yeah. when I went through your book, those are the first things that I yeah. read. I learned yeah. so much about you. Yeah, they're examples. And we added more of those, you know, throughout there. And just kind of, and I felt it breaks up the text a little bit too. So it's not this dense stream of text you may see in a typical textbook. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that we added that I'm very proud of is a new uh, text box called Sustainability in Horticulture, to where I think we added 17 examples across horticulture of the sustainable practices, weather monitoring stations, using um, you know, solar panels for energy, anaerobic digestion, um, you know, um, new kind of uh, you know, GPS sprayers. We were talking about reduced spraying technologies. And so re recycling programs for pots and 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 like the whole, I mean, the majority of the wine industry in California is sustainable. And it's not only environmentally sustainable, it's socially sustainable with, with environmental justice and, and you know, worker protections and, and all those things. So I think that really adds a new aspect to the book. And it's really just more of ways to give students ideas of the careers. Yeah. Um, I've always taught horticulture with the philosophy that you can combine a love of plant plants with almost any hobby you can think of and find a career in horticulture that's a niche. So there's a really cool new area of horticulture called agrovoltaics, where they're using translucent solar panels in production fields that will either tilt out of the way of plants or grow low light intensity plants mm -hmm. underneath of them. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that there's a student who takes one of our classes or maybe takes this class in some other area of the country with this book and they go, I've always liked electronics, but man, I love plants. And now they can they can combine those two hobbies together, those two interests, and find a career. I, I've read about those. It's so cool. <laughs> um, that, that When we talk about a third edition or maybe a fourth edition, that aspect <laughs> is going to just keep growing. We're going to run out of stories at some point. <laughs> yeah, gonna, yeah. But I, I don't think we'll run out of examples of sustainability. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Because that is always, I, I think I even write in... Gosh, I think it's the forward to the book that if you're going to go into horticulture, I guarantee whatever you're going to do in, is going to be done more sustainable in the future. Do you have any advice for professors or instructors out there who want to write their own book <laughs> or you know write their own textbook? Well, I think for us, the, the reason why it flowed so well, probably in that first, you know, the first edition is that what we basically did is we took the PowerPoint lectures that we gave and then we kind of built the chapters around them. And then everything, like if we were going to talk about some part of agriculture or some part of horticulture that we would add in one of those author flashbacks or a story, Dave would just do his really good job of building that right into the, the text for that particular chapter. So I think that the best advice that we could probably give some, some professors who are thinking about it is like, if you've got a course that you're real passionate about, that you've invested a lot of time in, it was real easy for us to take that and turn it into one of your electronic offerings. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I would also think about it, I spent a lot of time thinking about it from the student's perspective. W what did I want them to have as a resource? And 
how is it going to be interesting and useful and practical for them? And I think if you go into it with that mindset, you can't help but be successful because you're you're really listening to the students and what they want. And we listen to them. They want that format. They wanted to learn more about the career profiles. And I personally wrote the book just as much to teach someone who's already interested in horticulture as I did trying to recruit someone into the major and the discipline to give them time. So, so we could have written it more dense on the scientific side, but it would have lost that other audience. And if it was all the way in the other direction, it may not have been rigorous enough for a college course. So it's like that combination of the science and the practical, but showing them why the science is important to understand because it influences the practical. I think that was the approach that I took to it. And then I also, again, know all the other books that are written in your subject and find your niche, find what's missing. And I think Dean and I, we talked a lot about that and that that career aspect of the, the profiles, the practical aspect of those, and then that ability to reach out to all those resources on the internet, I think is, is critical because you're showing students how valuable that is when they're learning, but also how valuable that's going to be when they're a professional. Mm -hmm. And the other thing it does, it lends itself very well to the asynchronous online course environment. And so I think that, you know, that is is something that is not going away. And we're actually expanding that in most of the campuses across the country. So the students that we have are not going to be in the seats in the classroom 100% anymore. They're going to be working. They're going to be having their own lives. And they're going to have an opportunity to take a course, have a textbook that facilitates that so they can kind of study on their own. Dave's teaching a class now with that textbook fully online, fully asynchronous. So I think that if authors realize that that's a niche that they can capitalize on, then they can actually get a lot more out of the title. Yeah. I've, I've actually anecdotally, or I've, I've talked to many students that um, in the agriculture, horticultural discipline that we have, and I think that's all across most campuses, students are working now. They're working part-time or full-time jobs. So many of my students have said when they sign up for classes, they always want to make sure that at least one of their classes is online because it gives them more flexibility to be able to work. And an introductory text like ours, I think, fits well into that. Although I do have colleagues, not only here, but at other universities who use this in an in-person class as well, and it's a great resource resource for them. So, mm -hmm. so for, for me, we, at Illinois State, we use it both as a recruitment tool and an online class. So my online course uh, ranges anywhere between 50 to 75 students a semester, and 60 to 70% of those students aren't even ag majors. There's students on the other side of campus who saw introductory horticulture, so I'm interested in plants, so I'm hoping it's their gateway into maybe it could be a possible career, mm -hmm. to teaching it with a hands-on um, component of the class where they're actually getting the principles and practices because horticulture is hands-on and it's it's doing things but but I think the text we wrote is adaptable to both types of situations and I think that's what makes it flexible. No, I think that's a great roadmap for professors who might find it daunting. They don't mm -hmm. know where to start. And like you said, listen to the students. Mm -hmm. You've already started your work, bring your passion into it and you, you're bound to succeed. We have a final segment that we call You're Wrong. <laughs> not <Okay>. not you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Are there any, you know, big misconceptions in the realm of horticulture that you want to? This is your time to rant <laughs> and tell the world. Horticulture is not just digging holes and mowing grass. I hear that all the time. 
Yeah. There are great careers in horticulture and there are very technical careers in horticulture. So the other thing is people say, oh, well, you know, I garden in the backyard as a hobby. How can you ever have a job in this? There are great careers in horticulture and there are so many opportunities, so many niche markets to follow your passion. Um, like Dean said, you can grow plants, you can arrange plants as a floral designer, you can do landscape design as the artistic side to it. You can get into the business side and own a garden center. Um, you can go into public horticulture you can you can work with extension it's just so diverse and and i guess dispelling the myth that um and again i talked to a lot of parents of college students like how is my son or daughter ever going to make a living doing this and i'm like whoa there are and i always hesitate to say horticultural jobs i always use the term horticulture careers because that's what they are and they're great careers out there and they just like dean and i can attest to they will take you all over the world it's amazing mm -hmm. And I would think if I had a myth that I wanted to spell, I think that there's so much mobility within horticulture. So if you're broadly trained, it doesn't matter where you start and it doesn't matter how many steps you've taken in between and where you end up. There are a lot of opportunities for lateral movements or a lot of opportunities to get into other industries that could be allied, et cetera. So, you know, once you're trained in horticulture, you can stay in horticulture, but you can do many different things throughout an entire career. And so I think that's one of the other myths too, that, you know, one is that, hey, am I going to get a job? And two, is that going to be the job for my entire career? Well, no, that's not the case. And the other thing that in, in what David and I do, what really lends itself, that's very interesting, especially on the practical ag side, is that, you know, we can sort of, you know, work at a university, which is a, a fantastic place to have a career, or we can go to the business side. That's another fantastic place to have a career, or we can go to government service. So there's all of these opportunities that, you know, I think once students realize the potential of their degree and certainly where they can go in the industry, it's, it's wide open. Thank you, Dean and David, for joining us on today's episode and educating us about what is possible in horticulture and how it impacts all of our lives. Your journeys, beginning with working at the family business to going to grad school together, traveling around the world, and applying your knowledge to different regions, and now both working in horticulture education, really helps illustrate the amount of options available for those interested in horticulture. To grow a thing is to invest in its future. It takes nurturing, time, the right balance of elements, and sometimes careful instruction. The Capsule Brothers were born to the business of cultivation. They took their green thumbs across seas and distances to advance their fields, both academic and literal. Dean and David will continue to grow the next generation of growers. Their title is built with such intention, and the seeds they are planting in the hearts of their students will blossom long after the semester is over. Can I Get a Retake is hosted by Michelle Manneman and Michaela Albee. The show is edited by Maggie Christensen. Artwork for the podcast was designed by Michelle Manneman. Our intro and outro music was created by Coma Media. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe, share, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. To join the conversation, you can find us on Instagram at Can I Get a Retake. For show notes and episode transcripts, visit greatriverlearning.com slash podcast.